I met Fabrizio Petena back when I was a CTO at Escali. As a board member, he's always been extremely helpful, especially coming from a technical background and being very pragmatic. He helped us time and again with important market insights, great advice, and key hires. That's why I'm so pleased to interview Fabrizio today and share with you some of the things I've learned from him. Fabrice is a partner at Global Founders Capital, a stage-agnostic, life-cycle, global venture capital firm. If you're wondering what that is, he'll explain in this episode. We'll also talk about GFC's decision process and how they support startups, what good board meetings should look like, his analysis of Latin American markets, and the signals investors pay attention to. My name is Yuri Danielchenko, and this is Latitude Podcast. Welcome, Fabrizio. Thank you so much for joining us on Latitude Podcast. We're very pleased to have you as a guest. And also super happy to be here. Yuri, I'm a big fan of yours and the work that you do, especially the work that you did at Scalia. So super happy to be a part of what you're building. Amazing. Thank you. So yeah, uh, since you mentioned Scali, it's a great segue. Um, I remember during my time there as a CTO, it was really great to have you on the board because you would always provoke us and like ask good questions from the technical side. You had that background. You didn't really like pressure me, but you always helped us kind of evaluate the options and make sure we're on the best path. I wonder if you could tell me like your transition from the technical role into VC and how that background is helping you become a better investor. Yeah, of course. So actually, I started my career as a developer. I worked in a U.S. startup for many years, writing software. Of course, you know the tools and, and the languages that they were used back then are completely different in terms of uh, frameworks and, and that are used nowadays. But uh, the first point, I certainly leverage the background, right? There are a couple of ways that this happened. So first, I can usually hold a reasonably technical conversation with the founding team. Of course, you know, I cannot uh, compete with you, for example, right? I don't have the career anymore and so on, and, and you're an amazing coder and, and CTO. But I can usually help the team think through the process. And particularly, I would say, when thinking about the connection between product and tech. So when I talk about product, talking primarily about the connection between what people need and the technology. So how do people behave and so on? How do you measure or how do you check what's important for them and so on? And then how do you build that? The other more technical, more specific way, I tend to be able to help startups hire technical talent. If we look at the portfolio, I think there are three or maybe four cases where this has happened already, where somebody from my previous life, you know, my technical network was a good fit for as a CTO or, or some sort of key technical position for the startup. So that's very cool too. I'm happy to help in that way. Yeah, and I, I do want to thank you for that because, Kali, I remember when we would mention a position that was open, you would always come back with like a good list of candidates. So that was really nice to have your support on that. And I can attest to that help for sure. Yeah, cool. Yeah, um, moving on to like the side of participating on the boards. You participate on a lot of them, good practices and also pitfalls that founders should avoid to keep those meetings uh, very productive. My first recommendation, right? And I don't know, sometimes we invest in a, in a super early stage company that doesn't even have a product yet. Sometimes it's later stage. Whether it's a formal, informal board and so on, I always recommend that you have it because most founders maybe will 
think as a kind of a place where investors are going to ask and how they're going to grow faster or whatever. And that's not really the purpose. I think the purpose is just to understand the bottlenecks and to help the company. So even if you don't have a formal board yet, you know, you should set up an informal one. And just to put people in that mindset, right? And the second thing is that having an informal board will help you think about being very synthetic about what's important to the company. Because when you need to explain something, you need to can really kind of understand what's going on. So you're going to basically look at your whole operation and all departments, etc., and so that you can really kind of summarize that information in a board. And that's going to be very helpful. Okay, you're going to think about you know, maybe certain KPIs that you were not measuring before. Maybe your board members will ask the question, oh, are you looking at this and that and so on? I think in general, this is going to be very positive. Other best practices that come to mind here involve your upper management team in the board. Uh, also, I find it's very useful to ask uh, participants to send questions ahead of time. Because then you're also forcing participants to do their own pre-analysis and, and you don't have to spend a lot of time, a lot of board time explaining things. So the ideal board is a board where people arrive at it. Uh, we, st- we start meeting with everybody, kind of understanding the data, understanding the basics, right? Where we were last month, where we are now in terms of the main KPIs and so on, the challenges, challenges we had last month, how they evolved. Then we can build a very positive, very constructive discussion on top of that. The counterexample here is if you have to spend 80% of your board explaining to people what is the business and what is going on with the business, right? So that, that's usually a problem. And um, also it's a common practice to kind of prepare for the board meeting ahead of time in terms of sending some information, right? Even doing like individual calls with all the participants, not to surprise everybody during the, the board meeting. How important do you think that is and best practices you've seen around that? I think it helps sometimes. To me, that's particularly important when there is something very different happened that month. Maybe you had a massive change in in one major KPI, maybe a specific situation with a very large customer and so on, so that you put people in the mindset already, so that they can come, so that that they can kind of already understand ahead of time what what the situation is, right? What is the reality at the moment? It comes back to what I mentioned before. Ideally, we shouldn't have to spend a lot of time understanding the reality of the company uh, during the board meeting. That, that should come before, right? The board meeting, hopefully, is more for the basically constructive place where uh, everybody can understand you know, what is going on at the moment, right? And then people can provide suggestions, solutions, etc., proactively define next steps and so on. And switching gears to Global Founders Capital now. How does your firm kind of use this advantage of having offices all around the world? I think, you know, I should maybe mentioned this before. So what is Global Founders Capital? We're stage agnostic, life cycle, global venture capital firm. So we have offices in a couple of cities in the U.S., also an office in Latam, which I'm part of. We have three or four offices in Europe, China, in India, also in Singapore and in Dubai, and if I can call them front offices, right? So so all of our front offices are local. They're made up of people that really understand the local reality, the local venture capital reality of these markets. And of course, you know, people that have had a significant hands-on experience in tech and venture, but it's a major global fund headquartered in Berlin. 
So, so our back office is kind of centralized and kind of a, we operate it at, at scale uh, over in Berlin, uh, but our offices are very local. Our support is very local first, right? But we take advantage of the fact that, that we do have offices in all of these places, right? And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, so we recently um, helped a Latam founder um, understand the particular, so there's a Latam founder in, in our portfolio building company that's inspired in a few Chinese businesses in terms of how they, they operate with social commerce. And we, you know, we could have a call, right? We had a call with our Chinese partner and she was able to kind of really provide local context from China as to how these different businesses or they were doing. And this model, it just happens to be very common, very kind of a very uh, widespread way of buying in China, right? All these billion-dollar companies there with different strategies. So, so that's one way. Uh, and of course, you know, we'll never share confidential information, but 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 if you're in the market, you know, so of course, you know, our, our Chinese partner could uh, see what's going on with the market and, and then help uh, the Latin founder in this situation. The other way that we help um, is not that it happens very often, but it does happen, right? Is that we can, we can help companies expand internationally. We can try to find companies, uh, customers in other markets. This is, of course, you know, more common for U.S. company, maybe also a Brazilian company that wants to sell uh, abroad. We can help with, with those first few customers, and first few commercial intros, but uh, even beyond that. And we can also help the company find a local country manager in the country that the company wants to expand to. That happens as well. And the third way is that, of course, you know, we, we discuss what are the major global trends among all, all the partners. Uh, so this knowledge sharing is very helpful because it helps us kind of really um, understanding maybe what, what is next, right, in terms of uh, big trends and big tech trends and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just um, sparked my curiosity. When you said about the global expansion, how much are you looking at that when you analyze companies? Is that something you kind of see as a very big positive? Do you select for companies that are that have that global reach potentially? Uh, we don't necessarily um, expect it. To us, uh, usually, you know, you need to be able to win in your key market. If you don't win in your key market, it's very hard to go abroad. But for, you know, certain models, and again, you know, I have to refer to, back to software here, especially maybe B2B software, this tends to be very common, especially if you're focusing on a certain niche or a certain size of a company as customer and so on. We can look at that. I think, to be honest, we would look at the global market, yes, but I think we would primarily analyze how well that company can win the local market, whatever local market they're operating in. Yeah. And given that you have this sort of global lens, what do you see specifically in Brazil and LATAM? Like, what are the characteristics uh, compared to other markets? And what are the main challenges and opportunities you see in LATAM? Yeah, so the first thing that I always mention is when you invest in Brazil, you need to, especially when you do venture capital investment, right? You need to kind of be aware of the demographics because there, there are always, we can talk about Sao Paulo, we can talk about Mexico City, Bogota, and so on. This characteristic is very common all across Latin, which is that you have two realities. You have the rich neighborhoods, and then you have the, the middle class, I would say. Um, the question that I always ask myself is, if, when I'm looking at a company, do their product or do their service 
work for uh, not only the, the rich neighborhoods, but also for the middle class. Because the problem primarily is Brazil kind of becomes a small European country. Then you're not catering to 200 million people, you're catering to maybe 5 million, right? Or to 10 million, right? Which is, you know, um, the higher income folks that live in Sao Paulo, Rio, Belo Horizonte, and, and some of the, the, the major cities, right? So, so that's not a big market, right? So we, we always look for, and I can give you many examples here, right? So I can talk about uh, Covi, right? Through technology, they are very smart in renting cars to gig economy driver, right? Uh, so, so this is absolutely kind of large, like a broad appeal all, all across the different income tiers. We can talk about, I mean, Scali itself, right? I mean, you, know, you sell everybody nowadays, not everybody, but most people in the country need to be connected. Most people in the country are looking for basic services, basic telco or financial services and so on, right? And so that's the first thing that I always mention, right? The, the second thing is that you need to be... So LATAM is much more volatile uh, for private equity and private capital, especially for, for private equity. LATAM is much more volatile. We'll have times and periods where there's a bunch of money coming into the countries and then we'll have periods where nobody wants to invest here. I'm exaggerating. I think you know, many of the kind of regional and local funds they have been supportive of the ecosystem for many years. Uh, kudos to them, right? Absolutely. But when it comes to later stages, right, usually startups will, will look to foreign investors. And you need to be careful because sometimes the appetite of these foreign investors is simply not going to be there for them. So you need to plan for that. You need to be able to maybe kind of break even the company temporarily. If you need to, you need to be able to now, maybe you raise more capital than you need uh, and you need more runway and so on, just because you don't want to be caught up in kind of a, let's say, a bad moment for that time. And that's an interesting point. Do you see also uh, potentially like people having to raise earlier maybe than in other regions? Not that I'm given that scenario. So like you know, normally you would say, oh, a good time to raise would be like eight, 12 months out. Maybe companies here in Latam should try to raise earlier. I would definitely recommend very solid plan B for any company. And the plan B can be, well, okay, we're just going to raise very early or it can be, oh, we're going to raise you know, more money than we need now so that, okay, we dilute a little bit more. Of course, you know, founders don't want to dilute and, and I understand and we try to be very supportive of that as well. But also being in a position where you need money and you don't necessarily have access to the best conditions is very diluted. So, you know, I recommend having more cash than you need especially when the market is favorable, right? And you can raise a favorable rates. Just don't keep uh, kind of uh, mean maxing with, uh, with your runway. Oh, I'm just going to raise you know, 1.7 1 versus 2. Just, just be a little bit safer here. And the other plan B, uh, type of plan B, of course, is uh, depending on your company, if, uh, if you can significantly reduce your burn temporarily. Not every company has that characteristic for sure. And it's not only companies that have this characteristic are good and the other ones are not. But you have that tool in your, in your toolbox and it's very nice because then you can just wait. If it's a bad moment for a term, you can just wait. Yeah, talking about the runway and just wanted to hear your perspective of how it affected the companies in the portfolio, how you've seen kind of the market shift during these times and what's to come in the next few months. I would say that if we look at the first pandemic months, right? If we look at, you know, let's say March, April, May, 
half of our portfolio was affected negatively. Maybe another 25% or so, more or less, was kind of neutral. And another 25% affected positively, actually. So they got tailwinds from, uh, from the pandemic. And of course, you know, that meant that for a few months ourselves, and I, I suspect many, many funds like ours, that we were working very hard to support the companies, right? And just to understand, uh, and especially those companies that were affected, affected very negatively, what should they do? Should they change the product offering and so on? For a few months, that's, that's what we did. You know, we did deals. We still kind of did some investments, but, but we also uh, spent a lot of our time uh, helping uh, our portfolio companies. By merit of, of the founders, I would say that the vast majority of these companies that uh, were a couple of very difficult months, they pulled through. And, and many of them, they now, when you look at their business, right, is a more solid business than before. I can give you many examples, people that uh, you might, actually know, right? During the pandemic, very few people wanted to look for uh, dental treatment uh, for liners and so on. But, but the way that they changed the top of the funnel and so on, now it's actually much, much better company than before. So we have many examples like that, right? Are companies that uh, they did their jobs very well during the pandemic and now they're better positioned. Yeah, I think it's interesting yeah, the kind of building the resilience through overcoming these challenges and kind of coming out stronger. Yeah, and ultimately just vulnerability in some companies, right? Depending too much on a single source of uh, customers or or maybe having burn, it's too high, right? So it's definitely a time that yeah. puts everything to, to test. Absolutely, right? I think I would say, um, uh, of course, I can speak for every single portfolio out there, for every company out there. But but I think that there's a I mean, the clear trend was, of course, you know, okay, what do you do if your business, if the demand for your service or your product was significantly affected directly or indirectly. Why? I mean, well, maybe because delivering your product or service involves a, a physical visit to some, you know, maybe it's O2O. If it's travel, well, people are not traveling. If it's um, like COVID related to, to ride hailing, well, for, you know, COVID is doing great, so proud, but for a while, you know, a lot of people were not entering Ubers. So uh, what do you do? You know, I think uh, all of these companies, they were able to improve their kind of long-term perspectives because of what they learned during the pandemic. That's great. And you mentioned about how the companies kind of reacted to it. I wonder if that changed your criteria or your strategy for future investments as well. I was very humbled by how some of these founders reacted so first of all, knowing what I know now, uh, I look back and I say, okay, uh, even knowing about the pandemic and, and even knowing these certain types of businesses were very affected, I wish I could go back in time and invest more money. Why? Because of the resilience and, and the kind of the fate and the, the execution that these things showed. And, and that, that was very interesting. That, that's something that I'll never forget, how, how the team's came together and reacted and so on, and how they kind of came out on the other side much stronger. I'm not bullshitting anybody here. It's true. It's amazing. Changes the way that I look at companies, in the way, maybe even more now, I'll ask myself, okay, how would this team behave in kind of a, a pandemic situation, right? In a, in a situation where they are negatively impacted, how would they come together? But that's so hard to judge. How do you predict that kind of trait in somebody before 
they actually have to go through that kind of crisis. It's so hard. Certainly something that comes to my mind every now and then, is this team resilient? Is this team, are they, are they doing this for the right reasons? Because if you're doing this and understand that, then you have, you can draw strength from that, right? You can weather the, the storm. And uh, switching gears, you mentioned a few times, help companies kind of on the more operational hands-on level. What are the most common things that you get asked for aside from capital? And what are the things you believe you can help the most with to the portfolio companies? There are a few things that uh, um, are very common. There, these are very common asks. And, and we certainly like to be part of a like that kind of problem solving early on with the company. So uh, a very common ask is, Fabrice and Gypsy team, can you help me hire a technical team or can you help me with talent in general? And we try to do that. I think there are two uh, two companies, maybe three, and uh, I'm trying to remember the third one has been a while, but the two companies, uh, and I'm sure they don't mind me mentioning, they talk about Swap, and we can also talk about Tundum. And Swap is basically infrastructure, um, so infrastructure, famous infrastructure company. And Tundum is, uh, is actually a coffee chain coffee and, and kind of a food chain um, and, and in these two situations you know I introduced them to their uh, now CTOs and that's cool that's cool that we can do the kind of matchmaking the other um, very common engagement that we have for companies is to help them think about organizational uh, topics do I have my team organized in the proper way should I have more departments or more let's say, more squads that are focused on verticals or, or certain spaces. Um, do I have the right team for the job or not? Who should I hire and so on? And so this is very common too, right? And we try to the best capabilities to help in that sense. Then I would also say, you know, the commercial intros are very common, especially when we're also talking about B2B. Uh, the core kind of engagement that we have, in, and I'll say it's, it's fairly common, is that we do, when we discuss product strategy. We did this very recently with Levy Capital, which is a, a financial well-being company. So, and we, you know, I think we, we had a very uh, productive uh, set of meetings where, uh, as we were discussing how should Levy be positioned in this kind of market and how can they can, they can differentiate. Amazing. Yeah, especially with the hiring, I can attest to me, Scali was looking for a financial director and you recommended an amazing person. Super helpful to us at the time and yeah it's just uh the company slows down so much right or you could lose like five four or five six months without that key person so it's amazing when somebody uh, helps out with that yeah he's great you know i i i'm happy you worked out <laughs> yeah and uh talking about the gfc as a fund you mentioned it's like stage agnostic fund um, can you explain a little bit more what that means and kind of how that impacts your operations? We say that we are we were stage agnostic, that we are life cycle, and I think it's it's more important to mention that we're life cycle and then stage agnostic, and I'll get into why. First, you know, like a, a piece of data. Normally, VC firms, when they raise a fund, they usually reserve half of the fund to follow on investment. In our case, this is more like 80%. So when we make an investment, and, and most of the time it's an early stage seed investment, but it doesn't have to, most of the time we invest for the first time at seed, right? But when, when we do, we certainly have the intention that's not going to be the only investment that we, that we make in the company, 
and that we can be a potential partner for their series Bs and Cs and so on. I think that's particularly important in Latam. Why? Because in Latam, it's re- relatively simple to raise seed nowadays, right? And this is due to you know the work that you guys are doing, due to the work that the other early stage funds are doing, right? And this is something kind of new for Latam. It, was, it wasn't that easy before. You know, a few years ago, raising a seed in Latam was much tougher, right? But I think a lot of people did a great job here, and now early stage firms have options. Uh, raising a Series A in Brazil and, and of them in general is also not, I would say, still kind of a very, very much a sweet, sweet spot of the local and regional uh, VC firms, right? So they love the Series A and so on because you can see more of the product, but it's still kind of manageable ticket and so on. But from the B uh, uh, Series B onwards, right, that's not so easy anymore. There are only a few firms that will local firms that will be able to do that. And then you need to look at the Silicon Valley Silicon Valley, and, and China and, and Europe. You know, they need to kind of be in, in you know, maybe the, the global moment has to be favorable to uh, foreign investment. There are many reasons why it might be tougher uh, to, to raise a BSC and a D and so on in, in, in Atom compared to the rest of the world. Um, when we partner early stage, we can usually there's a good likelihood that we can be a partner at the late stage. And this is how we like to operate. A lot of firms and a lot of uh, founders will think, oh, no, I, you know, GFC is late stage. That's not true. The way that we work best is when we partner early stage. And maybe, you know, it's not, it's only a small check at the early stage. Sometimes it's a larger check, but sometimes it's a small check because we're co-investing with other uh, funds. But, you know, then we get to know you. Right? We get to know the founders, we get to work together and so on. And then we build the confidence to invest more later. Of course, you know, it's up to the founder whether they want to take our money or not. We work very hard so that the, we build preferences, so that the founders want to keep partnering with, with us and they want to kind of increase our, our, our relationship all the time. Uh, this is more important to, to me. That's more important than the, the fact that we are stage agnostic. We are. We look often at deals are later stage than um, deals that uh, other funds that are doing seed wouldn't look at. It's it's more rare that uh, we uh, that we do the, those kinds of investments. Um, I think it's more common to, that we do the, these big checks in, in Europe and the US. But it's true we we often look at these kinds of opportunities too. And how does that impact kind of your operation or like your team structure and all that? Because if the fund is focused on one stage, I'm assuming, and you guys are kind of looking at the whole life cycle, uh, that may have impacts on how you're structured, right? So we, we have an amazing uh, kind of growth, I would say uh, an amazing growth team uh, that's global, right? It's a global growth team. Uh, and this team is, you know, uh, they, uh, we have, you know, professionals that came from top tech firms and top later stage funds. And so the way that this works is that when we're doing an early stage investment, it tends to be very fast. I would say as fast or faster than any other uh, firm locally here. Many times, you know, we, we have a term sheet for the company in within 24 hours. And that's a kind of a very straightforward process. It involves a couple of phone calls, video calls, and so on. When, when we can meet in a, in a normal situation, we also like to meet in person for sure. But... It, it tends to be a very fast process. And um, when we look at a bigger check, what we do is that we involve 
our global growth team uh, in the analysis and due diligence, right? That's due to our, our global structure. This team is an NOA. And this team, of course, will enter these kinds of due diligences all over the world. Mm-hmm. So do you work with uh, Prohata and the Super Prohata on your investments as well? When we make an investment, we always ask for the market standard, which is the Prohata. We never ask for a Super Prohata, but I think what you mean here is Okay, you know, even though you, you don't ask for a super prorata, right? And, and, and the reasons why we don't, does it happen that you often then kind of uh, increase your allocation in a company over time? You know, when a round comes that maybe we have, I don't know, 10% of the company, and then when an opportunity comes, maybe uh, we can be a source of funding and then go to 15. And that happens, I would say, very often, probably, it's not all the time for sure, but it's more often than any other firm that I've seen operating, at least uh, regionally in our time. And that's part of what we do. Sometimes, we'll, so we don't have a, a strict minimum initial stake to invest, right? So many companies, many firms, they will say, okay, I need at least uh, 10%, 15%, 20% of the company straight away in my first investment, right? And we don't do that. But we try to build uh, a significant minority uh, stake in a firm over time. We never interfere in governance, right? Founders, they run the business. When we build a good relationship with the founding team, with the leadership team, we absolutely like to naturally increase our ownership of the company over time. Yeah, I mean, that's great to see that it happens commonly because that means you guys are even more confident right about the company and also the founders kind of pick you so that's a it's a yeah. great sign of like from from both sides of a good collaboration there sometimes uh, you, do, you know it's uh, many situations happen right you know each uh, each situation is different uh, uh, sometimes all the time that we're able to be a source of capital for sure we try very much we try very much uh, sometimes you know we want to invest more but but also the company who ask us to only do a prorata because the investor that's leading around wants twenty percent of the company. There's no, they don't want to dilute more, and that, that happens too, right? It's a pity for me, but but it happens. But I think you know many times we're able to to do that to to kind of um, increase our stake over time and, and build confidence, uh, you know, together with founders over time and be a source of capital for the long term. Yeah, and, uh, you mentioned already for some of the larger. Uh, checks with the growth team you, you kind of collaborate on that but for other investments um, how does it work the decision making on investments uh, in all these different locations when we look at you know our major type of investment which is a early-ish uh, stage vc check the partner that's leading the investment has um, a lot of autonomy and there are many situations where of course, we'll ask uh, the company to meet many partners and many uh, team, many colleagues in, in, within GFC, right? Because we, we want different views, and uh, I think it's also good for the company to, to meet a lot of folks from from our side. But at the end of the day, the partner leading the investment can often kind of just defend and the investment and say, okay, do, you know, even though maybe a lot of people are against it, you know, I want to do this, and I think that that's an, an amazing aspect of GFC that people don't realize. I think, you know, maybe because of some preconceived notion, people say, oh, this is probably very centralized, you know, because I'm having this call with all these people, with this kind of uh, internet billionaire and so on. We have like this very bureaucratic uh, investment committee and so on. It's not true. At the early stage, the local team 
has a lot of weight. I'm not going to say 100%, but I'm going to say 95%. And that makes sense because when you're close to a market, you just have a better view. You just have a better understanding. And the fund trusts us to do that, to have a very good understanding of what a great team is for the market and what a great opportunity is for that market. Of course, at the late stage, then it's a decision that has to be more defended. You know, the numbers have to kind of add up, thesis and so on. And it's a different process and it has to be a different process. There's no way around it. Great. So it's um, definitely more of a decentralized approach, I guess. And yeah, like you're, you're using your local knowledge to make like kind of best yeah. decisions on, on the ground. Local knowledge, but with global uh, scale in our back office, right? And that's really helpful because then we can sometimes write term sheets and we can follow a, a company throughout their life cycle much further than, than a VC, a normal VC could, engine, uh, could would normally do. Great. What's your advice for founders that want to reach out to GFC? So you can always write. It's just... Uh, and that's true for a lot of uh, funds. You know, you can just do put you know its, its name at globalfounders.vc and then you just write to us. The, the thing is, that what do you put in the email? Try to demonstrate. Try to be very clear about the market that you uh, that you're in. Why do you think you have an angle? Right? Why do you think you have a wedge into the market? The other way to I think a lot of founders they will try to be kind of mysterious about when they reach out. They want to be mysterious, right? And they'll maybe throw one KPI or say, oh, well, we're doing this and we want to have a call and so on. It's fine, you know, it's fine to want to have a call. But think a little bit about the process, right? How do you want to come across during that process as a founder? Do you want to come across as a founder that's very confident in, in what uh, she or he is building, can explain the opportunity very clearly, does so ahead of time and without that much complication and so on? Or do you want to be kind of mysterious just to have a call? And you know, Think about, you know, every touch point matters, right? The other way to, to reach out, and, and I think it's always better. And it's always, it's, it's true, the, you know, the inverse is true too, you know. How do we reach out to founders, right? Well, we can write to them in LinkedIn or, or, or write to them to their emails and, and so on. But what I would usually do is, you know, if I see uh, maybe on LinkedIn that you that you're connected to that founder, I'll ask for an intro, right? You you did, and then because you know it's always better if a common acquaintance uh, will makes an intro. That's so much smoother, and I think that puts that that adds a lot to the process. Makes sense, and you kind of touched on that a little bit, but just wanted to zoom in on the specific signals you look for, uh, both positive and negative, when you evaluate early stage startups and founders. So first of all, you know, there's no formula. Whoever says they have a formula, like a fail-safe formula, is lying. And if somebody ever finds the formula, then you know the market is going to change very much because then we might have like uh, one VC that's doing ninety percent of the deals globally, just like, or maybe we have two or three firms doing ninety percent of the deals globally, and uh, just like we have a few social networks that dominate the market. I don't see that happening for now. So it's, so it's still kind of, a, uh, there's other science to it for sure. But, but uh, so first, you know, we look for founders that um, they have a very clear understanding of the market they're in. Kind of um, look at a space, a certain space and say, oh, you know, this is what the space is. This is how fast customers uh, change providers. 
disease, how much is done in the space every year and so on, then how do you divide that space? Well, uh, there's always kind of part of that space that's not really attainable and, and basically really, really know your, your market and, and be realistic about it. Something that I don't, I personally don't like a lot of founders doing, they'll, they'll just look at the whole space of, this is 100 billion and uh, so our market is 100 billion. Hold on, right? Let's understand what, what is really addressable and what, what is really obtainable here. Then uh, I'll ask myself, okay, uh, and I certainly don't have a, a fail-safe formula, right? but I'll ask myself, does this team, actually something that I also you know, often ask is, it's not a kind of a must, but it's a, certainly a big nice to have is whether the founding team has a partner that's a CTO. Is there a founder that uh, is a technical founder? Uh, if there's not, we can still invest for sure, and we do, right? But then we need to find the person, right? And, and when we find when we find the person, we actually ask the current founders to give the person equity and to align the person long long term. That's super important. But but connected to that, can that founding team convince top talent to to join their mission? Connected to that, is that uh, are, are those founders being opportunistic or? Are they really driven to change a certain market? Are they really driven about the mission? And still connected to that, can the founders demonstrate a healthy degree of humility? Here's what we know and, and how well we know it. But here's not what we don't know. Here are the risks. We understand that the, do they ask for feedback? Do they consider opposing views as to, or you know, how, how do they take criticism and so on, right? And I think, uh, uh, Scully, you guys always had that very super well, right? Which is, you were constantly open to different views and, and, and to to opinions, to, critic, to critics and so on. Th- does this mean you kind of always accept that view? Of course not, right? At the end of the day, you make the decision that you think is right, but that you... But you guys, I've always had the humility to listen and to really kind of understand uh, what uh, your your board members were saying, etc. Yeah, and this is an interesting point you touched on, kind of counterintuitive, because maybe founders feel like they need to hide the biggest risks, you know, not talk about them as much. This is similar to when you're like going through an audit, right? Like somebody finds a risk that you mapped already and you knew about, but decided not to take care of it's fine, right? But to find that big risk that you didn't know about, then it's like, okay, this person doesn't really understand the market. It never works, right? You, I mean, if you hide, sometimes it's not a, that you, the people are hiding it intentionally, it's just that they maybe kind of a subconsciously avoid the problems. Because right? they don't, maybe they don't have answers for the problems right now or the, for the risks, and we just, they just subconsciously, subconsciously not, not talk about it. And, uh, that never ends well. Eventually, the risk catches up to us. Yeah, I constantly see you guys. You're pretty active doing a lot of deals. I see you make a lot of investments. So there's probably way more that, that you pass on. So I'm curious, like, what do you learn with the investments that you don't make? What you learn is uh, great investments that, you know, about your anti-portfolio, as people call it, right? I mean, what are the great investments that you passed, right? You learn about yourself, right? About your own biases. To me, when you learn about your biases, you need to find ways to, to always be conscious about them. I think to me, historically, when I look at the, these investments, I, I tend to be maybe more skeptical than most people in terms of uh, 
how fast the company can grow and different challenges. And I had to learn that over time over the last few years at GSC. First, always looking at the what can go right and then asking what can, because if you, if you, um, if you're always asking yourself, you know, what could go wrong? It's easy to dismiss an investment. It's easy to never invest when you're always asking, okay, oh, this could go wrong or this could not work and so on. But thinking positively first, I think that's my major, my major lesson. But you, at the end of the day, you learn about yourself and about your own shortcomings. It's a great way to look at it for sure. And think about the VC as a market, put it this way, right? Uh, as, a, as an activity as well. You have a technical background, you're deeply involved in both the, the technical companies and the VC world itself. How do you see the VC activities evolving over the next years with the help of technology? I think the VC trend will continue because all of the inputs helped us get here are still there. We still have a lot of appetite. We still have big IPOs. Um, we still have more and more people um, choosing uh, uh, entrepreneurship careers, right? Over, I don't know, banking or consulting or whatever they, they were going to do before. And also, I think entrepreneurship is it's a choice for many of the best founders. It, it, it's it actually it's not really a choice, you know, it's something that they just have to do. So, so all of this means that, you know, that the inputs that we need to keep doing great investments and the in, the appearance of great companies, that's all going to continue. But I think, you know, the, the, the question here is how can people with technical backgrounds take better advantage of that? The good news is that if you can build a product and so on, it's a, you have a lot of market. And if you don't, you need to call me or need to send me an email at fabriceglobalfounders.vc and we'll go over the whole portfolio and we'll put in touch with you know, you have a pick, you know, as a technical co-founder or a technical team member, you can pick where you want to work. That's fantastic. But to me, you know, the, the most impressive situation I know of is related to, to, to technical founders and technical team members is when somebody that can build products very fast and is still very much hands-on, like, like you, Yuri, you know, when that person really integrates into the customer discovery process and you can build prototypes very fast, but you can also involve yourself in, in the customer's journey, right? Amazing things happen because, then, you know, you can shortcut months of uh, in the company's uh, go-to-market and product market fit search, right? Because you can inter- iterate so fast. A kind of a, a close, a small close very, very close. I mean, a small team of technical founders or technical team members that work very well together and they're close to the problem, right? They're very honest about what is the problem of the customers. You can accelerate your go-to-market tremendously, right? I certainly like to see more of that. Amazing. And do you see like technology transforming VC funds themselves, like how the activities are done? Do you see kind of funds as we know them today continuing on for many more years or do you see some sort of big shift coming with the tech applied? It still largely is uh, kind of people talking to people, right? Like it's, uh, you know, it's referrals, it's interviews. Uh, I wonder if you see kind of a shift coming uh, where the tech will play like a big role in this industry. I think at the end of the day, it is still 
kind of a face-to-face thing, okay? That said, you know, can funds use technology? Of course. So there's a case of a U.S. fund uh, and they invest in consumer uh, startups, right? What they do is that they integrate with a bunch of, uh, they use uh, AI to predict uh, consumer trends, and they do that by integrating with various kind of consumer-related data sources like point-of-sale systems, um, social media accounts, right? So maybe, you know, maybe as an entrepreneur launched a new kind of, a, you know, vegan product or, or a snack or, or, or an ice cream and, and use technology to detect very early that you're, you're about to go viral, right? So that's an amazing example. But of course, it, it works for uh, when, when there's a degree of commonality among the startups that, that they are now analyzing, right? They could not do that. It's very hard to do that when you're comparing consumer B2C, direct-to-consumers with B2B software. At GFC, we have a very structured way to detect um, very early when somebody is about to create a business. It's not fail-safe. Many times we get false positives, but we use technology like that. And then we, we do that at, at a global scale. So I, I think more and more funds will use that. More and more funds, they will be more and more tech-enabled. Um, yeah, so you touched on the, the technical founders, and which was very interesting. Uh, in my experience so far, we don't see that many kind of technical founders leading the way. It's usually like the business team or, or business founder looking for a CTO, looking for a partner. And not the other way around. Uh, is that something you also, on your end, and also, do you see any benefit in seeing more tech founders? Like, what do you see as a kind of a positive that would happen in the market if we saw uh, more tech founders kind of starting their ventures? Especially at the beginning of a company's life, how fast can they iterate their product? What is the most important thing that you need to do or, you know, when you're opening a company? Sometimes, you know, first couple of years have to be about uh, finding product market fit. You need to find a, a kind of a set of uh, service or product offerings that an early cohort of customers really loves. And you kind of know when you have it. People say, oh, do I have product fit or not? And so on. You know when you have it, you know, because people, you know, customers are writing about recommending your product to other people. Your cost of acquisition is very low because you have all of this, you know, you're, you're selling very easily. But, but how do you get there? The best way to get there is when the, the, the initial founding team is able to iterate customer feedback and, and product uh, releases very fast. Basically, you know, you're, you're listening to your product, to your customers, you're developing hypotheses as to how you, need, should, you should improve the product, and then you're releasing very fast. What I think happens many times in, in Latam, also in part, other parts of the world, but I'll speak about Latam, which is a little bit more... In what I know, what happens many times is that you have teams that understand the market and so on, business founders understand the market, right? But they're not able to iterate fast. And to me, what makes the big difference is, is, is if you have one or more senior but still hands-on technical founders in the founding team. Because then, you're, you know, you're talking to your co-founders every day. You're understanding that you have direct, a direct relationship with your customers because you're looking at the data, you're looking at the feedback, and then you iterate. And I did that many times as well. You can just code. You don't have to do a super long planning. The early stage, the platform is, so, is simple enough is that you can just code and you can just release. And great technical founders, they do very fast and it's beautiful because 
the race at the early stage, the race is product market fit. Well, that's a great way to close our interview. Thank you so much for joining us, Fabrice. It's been amazing. And thanks for sharing all the insights and experience with us. Super impressed with what you guys are doing at Latitude. And thank you very much for the invite. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast with Fabrizio Pitena, partner at Global Founders Capital. Each week, we'll be talking to great founders and investors like him. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and check out Latitude.com to find out more about Latitude Fellowship Program. I'm your host, Yuri Danielchenko. Until next time.